It's a Christmas miracle. We have both screens working. Good job, you guys. Yeah. Well, um, Joe already said it, but and I'm a little bit biased, but I do want to give kudos to Caleb Fay. I know I'm biased. I'm his dad for preaching last week. Good job, son. Thank you for doing that. Very proud of that young man. What did you push? What did you do? Did we lose everything? Oh, okay. It's Apple products. Sorry, folks. Just If you're new here, just get used to it. I don't know what else to say. Let's do this. Okay. Good? All right. I'll stop talking about my son. Um... You know, there's a lot going, uh, just a lot of talk these days in the world in general about identity. I mean, anywhere from there's racial identity to gender identity to political identity. Uh, we live really in an age of identity politics. And um, it's no wonder, really, because identity is perhaps one of the most important questions. It's most, one of the most important things in our lives. Everyone is searching for their identity. Everyone is searching to understand who they are because everyone wants to find meaning. And identity, I think, is what actually infuses meaning into our lives. If we know who we are, then we know what we're about. We know what our life is to be. But the mindset of our times, of our age, of this particular age in the world, is that you can be whoever you want to be. That you can be, that you should be yourself. Have you, heard the, have you heard the phrase, you do you? We're really given as people a, kind of a semi-divine power to make ourselves into whoever we want to be. Whatever we want to be. And, to sh- and then to shape the world accordingly. But our, our identity really isn't who we think we are or who we want to be. Our identity should be glued and attached and and solidified in who God says that we are because that is actually who we are that is actually our identity is what God says it is and when we want to write our own story and write our own script God actually tells a better story God tells a truer story you know most of us have family stories that our parents told us and their parents told them and and maybe they go back for generations about who, you know, certain individuals in our family, who they did, or like great exploits, or those kind of things. Some, some of you have done Ancestry.com and kind of tried to figure out who you're connected with. And by the way, we're all related at one point. But the, there's kind of a story in my family. Most of my family, as far as I understand it, I haven't done any of the DNA tests or anything like that to find out, you know, how European I am. But I think I'm pretty European. Um, but most of my family, as I understand it, came from the British Isles, and particularly from rebels from Scotland, right, and criminals for, from Ireland that ended up in Australia. And my dad used to joke, I don't know how true this was, but my dad would, would always say, our Irish ancestors were the best horse thieves in Scotland. Or excuse me, in Ireland. They weren't in Scotland, they were in Ireland. They are the best horse thieves in Ireland. And whether or not that was true really didn't matter. But the, the power of the, the suggestion, the power of the story was intriguing because it was a story. It was a story about my family, about my ancestors. 
And stories have a tremendous power to convey meaning. They have, a, they have a tremendous power to anchor our identity. And this is true, I think, because by nature, we are what I would call an analogical people. And in other words, we understand most deeply and most at a guttural level, we understand things by analogy, by, by metaphor, by word pictures, by stories. We, we can understand things analytically, with data, numbers, information. But I think things, things come to our understanding most deeply and most powerfully through analogy, through metaphor, through pictures, through story that convey truths to us in a much, much more real way than, than data can often do. And with that in mind, over the course of January... What I want to do is look closely at, at some of the biblical metaphors, some of the biblical word pictures and stories that convey to us our identity, that tell us who we are. So, so consider for a minute some of the images that are given about the church in the Bible. Can you think of some of them? The church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the household of God. The church is the flock of God. The church is a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. The church is the bride of Christ. You see, the metaphors for the church are so numerous, I think, because there are so many aspects to our identity as the church. And the imagery is so rich because the reality that all this imagery points to is actually even richer. And so to me, the, the wealth of metaphor actually drives the point home that the church is much more beautiful than we think that it is. The church is much more significant than, than oftentimes we give it credit for. And so as we do this over the next month, as we look at these different metaphors of the church, what I'm going to do is anchor each of those, or anchor our, our four core values that we have as a church into these different metaphors so that we can understand who we are, our identity, and so that we can understand better our meaning and our purpose. What are we here for? What are we about? What are we doing? And if you don't know what our four core identities are, then I'd invite you to come back every Sunday in January. And I'll share them with you. So the first metaphor that I want to look at and I want to explore this morning is that last one I shared with you, which is the bride of Christ. And, and I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about this metaphor. Men, do you like to sit around and, and imagine yourself being a bride? Not often. Young ladies, perhaps. Right? But for us men... Uh, it seems rather odd to, to think of ourselves as a bride. But the point of the metaphor isn't to emasculate anyone or to feminize us. There's, there's no place for gender confusion in the metaphor because we're talking about a metaphor that, that expresses truth to us. It doesn't express all truth to us about what the church is, but some truth about what the church is. So this morning, I want to dive into it and figure out what is God trying to say when he calls the church his bride. And our text for this morning if you turn there in your Bibles, is Ephesians chapter 5. Hopefully you're already there because Kathy read it for us. And I, and I want to say this. Well, let's read it first. Our text is really centers on the relationship 
between Christ and his bride. And I want to focus on just three verses right in the center of this passage, starting at verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, be, that she might be holy and without blemish. And I know as men, especially as husbands, when anybody, a preacher, starts reading from Ephesians chapter 5, we kind of cringe. We go like, okay, I'm going to get beat up here because I'm not being a very good husband. But I'm going to give you a, a week off, men. It's not a pep talk about being better husbands. The focus this morning is on Christ. And Paul makes it clear that that's what he's talking about in this entire passage when in verse 32 he says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's giving these, he's giving these commands and these instructions on how to live as husband and wife in a marriage. Then he, then he paints this picture of Christ's relationship with his church. He says the mystery of marriage is profound, but the even more profounder, the more profound mystery is that of Christ and his relationship with his church. So the text speaks of marriage, but the deeper reality in marriage is that of Christ, a husband, and his church, his bride. So before we look, though, at this passage in more depth, let's explore this metaphor of bride, especially as it comes in throughout scripture. So if we look at if we look at the Old Testament, what we see is Yahweh God, who is the God of Israel, who chooses from Genesis 12 on, chooses a specific people for himself beginning with Abram, calling Abram and giving him a promise and Abram's name is changed to Abraham and he has a son of promise named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob who carries on that promise and then Jacob has 12 sons who, who grow into this massive nation in a foreign land even under slavery. God blesses them and God multiplies them and then God re redeems them from slavery and brings them to himself in what could be described as a wedding. And God sees himself as the husband of this wife, Israel, and he enters into a covenant relationship of faithful love with Israel. But we know the story, and in the story, this, this wife of Yahweh continues to go after other gods, pursues other husbands, and God continues to pursue her even though she is fickle, and he responds to her even as a jealous yet affectionate husband throughout the Old Testament. And then we get to the Gospels. And in the Gospels, we meet, of course, Jesus. And, and Jesus is twice referred to in the Gospels as a bridegroom. So we have all this Old Testament history, God as God as husband, Israel as, as wife, and now we have Jesus, the bridegroom. Two instances where he's called the bridegroom, and it's interesting that both of these instances are in relation to John the Baptist. You remember who John the Baptist was, right? This wild prophet who eats locusts and, and wears skins and, and eats wild honey and is, is bringing prophecy and, and denouncing kings and baptizing people in the Jordan River. 
And he identifies himself really as the forerunner, the herald of the Messiah, the one who goes before the Messiah to make a people ready for him. And in John chapter 3, this is what, what John the Baptist says about himself. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And so here you have a picture, if you will, of a wedding. And the, and the, and the friend of the bridegroom is the one, like the best man. He's the one that gets everything ready, makes sure everything's prepared, makes sure the feast is prepared, and everything's going to happen as they wait for the bridegroom to arrive. And they wait and they wait, and the bridegroom finally arrives. They hear his voice, and this man, this friend of the bridegroom, rejoices greatly that the, the bridegroom is finally there so that the wedding can begin. The party can now get started. It says, therefore, now this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. When the bridegroom shows up to the wedding, the, the friend of the bridegroom now takes a back seat. And, G, and John is saying that the bridegroom is now here. His name is Jesus. Now, there's one other time in Matthew where Christ identifies himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist, again, plays a part in this because John's disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, hey, why do the Pharisees fast and why do we fast, but your disciples don't fast? And here's what Jesus responds in Matthew 9, 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So again, Jesus now saying, I am the bridegroom. I have come. The wedding is going. The party has started. It's unclear to me if this imagery is really about Christ's relationship as a bridegroom to the bride, the church. The, the church is never mentioned in these, these two references in the gospel. Rather, I think what the point has more to do with is Jesus' relationship to his predecessor, John the Baptist. And what they're both saying, what both John and Jesus are saying about Jesus is that John was like the best man at a wedding, getting everything prepared, everything, everything ready for the most important and central person, the groom, who is Jesus. There's one other time in the Gospels where bridegrooms get mentioned, and it's a bridegroom gets mentioned, and it's in Matthew chapter 25. It's a parable that Jesus tells about ten virgins. and he, You know the story, so I won't tell the whole thing, but it's these ten virgins, five are wise, five are foolish, and basically five are ready when the bridegroom comes and the party's started. The other five who aren't ready don't get let into the party. And Jesus' point really there, again, is that I'm the bridegroom, I'm coming, be ready. That's the big picture. So as we step out of the Gospels and into the rest of the New Testament, we not only find, though, Jesus portrayed as a bridegroom as he is in the Gospels, but more explicitly now, we read about his people, the church, who are now referred to themselves as a bride. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this. He writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. I made a promise. I, I, I engaged you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so Paul's desire for this church, he sees them as a, as a, as a young virgin, a maiden that he is going to present 
to Christ, pure as a bride. So this is the first reference we really have to the church as the bride. Now, we've already read Ephesians 5, and we'll get more into that momentarily, which, all, which is also Paul speaking of the church as a bride. But finally, I do want to go to the end of the Bible. We come to Revelation, which is a book full of imagery, symbolism, analogy, metaphor, allusion, prophetic fulfillment. I mean, it's just a book full of a lot of stuff. And it culminates towards the end in Revelation chapter 19 with this proclamation. This is the Apostle John writing. And he says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Here's the Lamb. We know the Lamb is Jesus Christ. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And just as at the beginning of the story, in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, we have, we have God creating man and creating woman, and we have a wedding at the very beginning in a garden. Now, at the end of the book, we have another wedding. And God is finally reunited with his wayward creation, and this wedding imagery caps off all of these images that we have in this book, caps off in a joyous celebration. And so layer upon layer of imagery and, and meaning are conveyed as we move forward now and turn there, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, 9 through 27. As the Apostle John encounters another angel telling him, Revelation 21 verse 9, telling him, come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. Now, when he says, come, I'll show you the bride, what do you expect to see? A woman, right? Anybody? In a white dress with a veil, you know, that's what, maybe holding flowers. You, you'd expect to see a woman. Well, here's what, here's what he sees. He sees a city. He sees a city, the new Jerusalem, that's coming down to earth out of heaven. And verse 11 says, It has the glory of God, and its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Remember, metaphor here, word picture. Okay, You'd expect to see a bride. You see this massive cube coming down out of the sky. And when I say massive, I mean massive. Each wall of this city is 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles high. It's a massive city, a perfect cube. It's a safe city. It has walls that are over 200 feet thick. It has gates that are guarded by angels. It's a safe city. It's a massive city. It's a perfect city and pure, pure city. First of all, it's a perfect cube. 
And then it's made of all these pure and precious jewels with streets of pure gold. Verse 21 tells us that are transparent as glass. I'm not a metallurgist, but is pure gold transparent? I have no idea. I'd have to look into it. I'm not sure. But it seems weird that gold would be transparent, that you can see it through it. But the idea is it's this transparent, huge cube coming down out, sitting on the highest mountain in the land. And what is inside the city? We'll get there in just a second. First of all, this is the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city of David, the city of the king, the city of the Messiah. It was the place where God chose for his temple to be built. The temple was the place where God would choose for his presence to rest even in the midst of a sinful people. And the new Jerusalem is the perfection of what this Jerusalem in the Middle East was intended to be as well as the culmination of what the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 was intended to be. And what exactly was God's intention in both of those places? It was that God would dwell with his people in perfect harmony and restored and right relationship. That he would be with them as their God and they would be with him as his people. So, so if you think back, if you go back to the Old Testament, you look at the tabernacle. The design of the tabernacle. You look at the design of the temple that God made. There's one room in the very center of both the tabernacle and the, the temple. What shape was that room? A perfect cube. It was the Holy of Holies. It was the one room where God's presence would be. And it could only be approached through curtains and through blood. Through sacrifice. As God dwelt with a sinful people. It was the place where his presence could be with them. And now we know, because of the work of Christ, that Christ is our perfect sacrifice. And that he himself acts as the intermediary who removes the temple curtain so that God's people, who are now forgiven from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, who are now forgiven, who are now made new, who are now cleansed and purified, can be with God in his presence. So it's only right that in this new Jerusalem that there's no temple in the city for verse 22 tells us its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So God is constantly present within this city, verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. What happens when you take a perfect cube that's translucent, clear as glass, and you put a light in it? It shines. You see the glory everywhere. You see the picture. A perfect cubic city, translucent, on the hill, shining light. What does Jesus say about his church? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And here's the culmination of what Jesus is talking about. This city itself, if it's the bride, if it's the church, then the point is clear. The church itself is the dwelling place of God, where his presence and his glory will dwell forever. God will be with his people, unmediated, face to face. God's glory will shine through the church as a city on a hill and a light of the world. So what, do, what does all this mean? 
What does all this mean that we have Christ as the groom and the, and the church as his bride and all this biblical imagery from beginning to end? Well, I think there are a few particular implications that, is, that it's good for us to pay attention to before we finally get back to Ephesians 5. The first is that Christ himself is the bridegroom. The most important thing is that we recognize in all this imagery that we've just looked at that Christ is central to all of it. That he's at the very center as the bridegroom. The bridegroom was the key to the wedding. The wedding could not start until he showed up. The bride could not be a bride without him. He is everything. The second reality is that God desires a covenant relationship with his people, and specifically, a covenant relationship that's marked by intimacy and oneness. Right? The, the closest form of union on planet earth is that between husband and wife, between a married man and a married woman, an intimacy that is both physical and spiritual. Scripture calls it one flesh. And and that covenant unity is a pointer to the intimacy and the unity and the oneness that we as believers share with Christ. God desires a covenant relationship with his people like a a husband with a wife. And the third reality is that a wedding, the public uniting of a bride and groom is a celebration. It's to be marked with joy and feasting, laughter, wine, good food, and delight. A wedding is God's chosen picture of what life in the kingdom looks like. You want to know what life in the kingdom should be like? It should be like a wedding, like a good wedding, like a party. That's what life in the kingdom is about. And the fourth reality, the fourth implication I find in all this stuff is that the bride herself is beautiful and pure and cherished. And this is the idea to which Ephesians 5 perfectly points us. Christ loved the church gave himself for her that he might sanctify her. Again, Ephesians 5, 25. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And, and within these three verses, five basic truths are conveyed in a, in a logical sequence. We're just going to walk right through that logical sequence here. The first is right there at the beginning, verse 25, Christ loves the church. And honestly, we live in a time where it's popular, it's in vogue to to critique and attack and vilify and deconstruct and abandon the church. That's That's what it's popular to do these days. But like a good husband, Christ does not attack. Christ does not critique. Christ does not vilify. Christ never will abandon his church. So to put it bluntly, you you can't claim to love Christ and at the same time hate his church. Does the church need to be better? Does it need to be reformed? Does it need to be more pure? Absolutely. Absolutely. But those things only come as we love her Christ's bride is unique 
in all of eternity. The church is unique, cherished by Christ himself. The church is not God's afterthought. It's not God's plan B. If you will, it's been God the Father's purpose from ages past to prepare for his son a bride. And the church is Christ's first and primary love. It's the apple of his eye. Christ loves his church, and by implication, so should we. Secondly, we see in this passage that Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. And this is really the centerpiece of the gospel. God's love for us expressed in Christ coming and taking the place of his people as a substitution, as a, as a sacrifice, carrying the sin and the punishment of his people that we deserved. He took it on himself. Christ took the sins of the church. Christ took her sins, his bride's sins, as his own, all so that he could take her as his own. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Thirdly, Christ gave himself for the church in order to sanctify her. The basic meaning of sanctification, and it's expressed clearly in this passage, is purification or cleansing or making holy without blemish, without spot or wrinkle. This is, this is more than just justification. It's, it's more than just God declaring us righteous because of our faith in Christ. This is more than just forgiveness of sins. What this is is Christ changing us and transforming us, sanctifying the church. This is, God's, this is Christ's business to make her holy. And so if Christ's business is about making the church holy, then would you say that holiness is important? That it matters? And yet again, it's another one of those kind of four-letter words, even though it has more than four letters. Holy, holy has four letters. There we go. It's a bad word these days. We think of holiness and we associate it with goody two-shoes or we, th we associate it with legalism, but that's not the case at all. Christ wants his church to be holy, to be pure, to be more and more and more like him, and he's doing that work. And the way in which he does that work, he sanctifies the church, he makes her holy with the word. You might sanctify her, verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. As Christ's bride, the church is made holy and beautiful through the means of the living and active word of God. This means that our relationship with the word of God, and particularly the Bible, shouldn't be very complicated. In fact, it's most, it, it must be central in all that we do as a church. So I talked about core values a few minutes ago. Our first core value as a church is that we would be word-centered. That we would be a people who are centered around the word of God. Why? Because Jesus is using that word to make us holy. And I'm not just talking about making you holy, making you holy, making you holy. Making us holy as a people, sanctifying his church. He's actively using the word when it's opened, when it's preached, when it's read, when it's sung, when it's, when it's prayed, when we sit around in small groups and open and study the word, when you have your 
quiet time in the morning. God is using that. Christ is using that to make his church holy. In this moment right now, Jesus desires for us to be to be purified, to be beautified, to be washed by his word. And, and so we, we best not abuse the word. We, we best not ignore the word of God. We best not undermine it. We best not come over it and stand in judgment over it. We must submit ourselves to it and cherish it and pursue it and read it and study it chew on it, meditate on it, and be open to letting, us, letting it change us as it's intended to do. So to be a word-centered church is to be a church that actively submits itself to Jesus as he washes us in the word of God. And then finally, Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ uses the word to make the church a beautiful bride, to present the church to himself in splendor. And this last point carries with it really the weight of what Jesus himself deserves. Jesus is the one who eternally chose us, who, is eternally, who has given himself to us and died for us who unites us to himself in, in our faith, who, who gives us his spirit, who promises us an eternity with him in his presence. Does not that one who has done all that for us, does he not deserve the most precious, the most pure, the most beautiful, the most devoted bride in the universe? I mean, that certainly is the goal of the triune God. The question is, do we share do we share and do we partake in this goal? Do we join Christ in this goal of making his bride beautiful, not just for our sake, but for the eternal joy and the glory of our King, Jesus? This morning, we're going to come to the communion table. And we know, most of us know the story of when Jesus instituted this sacrament, this ordinance. He gave us the, the bread and the juice. And he said, in the bread, this is my body given for you. This, this juice, this wine is the blood poured out for you. And so we remember the, the centrality of the gospel. We remember that Christ has given himself for his church. And he's given himself to a bunch of sinners. None of us is perfect. None of you come to this table perfect, sinless. We all come needing the grace of God, needing a, needing a Christ who has given himself for us. So we come to be forgiven. We come to experience grace. We come to remember the gospel. But we also come to look forward. For as often as you eat and drink of this, Jesus says, you remember my death until I come. It's interesting, he told his disciples that as he took of the juice and as he, or the wine, as he drank it, he said to them, I will not taste again of the fruit of the vine until I taste it anew in the kingdom. And this meal here, as we take of it together, reminds us, it is a foretaste, if you will, of the wedding feast that's coming. It's a little picture, a little sip, a little taste, a little, a little look at what we have waiting for us at that wedding when Christ and his bride 
will sit down together and rejoice and be glad in each other's presence. So will you come and partake of this feast together? I would ask as you do so that you just, you can come up as individuals or as families or whatever, grab the elements and then if you would take them back to your seats and partake of them together there. Now would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the mystery that is Christ's relationship with his bride. We know from the beginning, Lord, that you've been pursuing a people for yourself, a people who are constantly running the other way after false gods, after other husbands, after other pursuits. And Father, that accurately describes many of our hearts in this room, even this morning. So we would pray this morning prayers of repentance and confession. We'd pray prayers of strength and help. We'd cry out for you to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to turn us back to our only husband, Jesus. So this morning, may Jesus be exalted, may Jesus be everything, the bridegroom, the one who loves his church so much. Lord, we, we are astounded at what you have done for us and what you promise for us. And so as we take of this meal, as we take of these elements, may we not only experience and remember your grace, your forgiveness, your washing, your cleansing, but may we walk in it. We look forward to that day when we'll sit down and we will sup with you. For blessed are all those who are invited and who come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We look forward to that day and we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.